Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all, it is live. Welcome to Volume 110 of Next Big Hit Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of great stuff for you, as always. We're going to get up close with Karen Ziemba, the Tony Award winner who's currently co-starring in the new musical by Kander and Ebb, Curtains. We also talk with actor Romain Fruget, who's currently appearing in Some Men by Terrence McNally, and he also gives us a little impromptu performance here in the studio. We're going to be talking with director and writer Rob Urbanati, who has two shows coming out at the same time. And we got a couple exclusive in-studio performances to help promote the Benefit Showcase, We Tell the Story. Marty Cooper's going to talk about Legally Blonde and a whole lot more. So let's jump right into it. On the boards. I read somewhere recently where the writer proclaimed that the gay play was dead because Showtime and HBO were killing it off. Well, nobody has been telling the audience that have been attending Some Men at the Second Stage Theater. Some Men has just extended to April 22nd, and we have one of the very talented ensemble members with us, Romain Fruget. How are you doing? Good. Hello. Tell us a little bit about Some Men. I don't. I think it's fairly safe to say we're not like pigeonholing it by calling it a gay play. No, it's uh, pretty gay, as one of the actors says in one of the scenes, actually. Um, it's uh, a gay play that kind of looks, takes a bit of a historical or epic look across the last century of uh, the lives of gay men. Uh, it starts at a gay wedding, contemporary, and uh, the different scenes is an episodic play. It doesn't necessarily follow the same character's arc all the way through the play, and it flips around different decades in the lives of the people that are at the, attending the wedding and when they found love and and some people, some actually characters aren't there that relate to the people later on that are somehow almost ancestors of uh, the characters at the wedding. And it touches on a lot of different subjects, gay wedding, uh, gay fathers, pre-Stonewall, in-the-closet lifestyles, all through the, the last century. And the playwright is like kind of inexperienced in this area, right? Terrence McNally has <laughs> written uh, Who's quite... Terrence McNally? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, Terrence has done quite a, has a wonderful body of work from For any of your listeners decades. out there who may not know, Love, Valor, Compassion, Masterclass, among many award-winning plays. Mm-hmm. Lives Together, Teeth Apart, the, the book to many of the best big musicals of the last two decades or so. Um, in fact, I understand that's... Kiss the, is the that Spider kind Woman. Of, yeah, Kiss of the Spider Woman and the you Full did Monty. Yeah, I was in the Full Monty uh, a few years back, it, uh, so I got to work with Terrence then, and he remembered me from Full Monty. We, we had worked together then, and was interested in me working in this show, and it's been a great pleasure, a real thrill to get to work with him. I was t- telling somebody at a talk back the other day that uh, in Full Monty, I didn't get to work as directly with Terrence and and as in- intensively or intensely. Because in a musical, there's so many different elements coming together. They were rewriting, and but different songs, and you're learning songs and dances, and there's so many different uh, theater artists putting this thing together. But uh, this has been much more intensive, the whole experience. It's been kind of wonderful. Were any of the songs from the soundtrack yours 
on Full Monty? On the Full Monty, yeah. I sing, well, I sing in a number of group things because there's one of the six guys that do the Full Monty, the final Full Monty show. Then there's a duet between me and Jason Danieli uh, called um, Walk With Me, where it takes place at a funeral at the Full Monty, and he's at his mother's funeral, and he has a little trouble getting... He breaks down at one point, and then I come in with him, and we're sort of actually the gay storyline in that show. We sort of discover each other or that we're in love with each other in that in that in the Full Monty, so that was the one gay element of that show, but... Here I am again, <laughs> representing. Now, what has been some of the biggest challenges with some men? It hasn't been exactly what I'd call challenging. I mean, just because it's been a really positive, productive experience. Uh, a lot of a lot happened with the writing of the play and the organization of the play. It was the the order of the scenes was switched around early on in rehearsal. Uh, there were quite a few scenes re- rewritten. We had a lot of rewrites. In fact, going on during previews, we re- we previewed three weeks. And they rewrote a lot of things, and we'd get new scenes and uh, new sections of scenes. So we'd be some, have some, the show would be going on quite nicely, and then we'd get some sort of bumpy roads. And, and <laughs> as we were putting that, in, putting them into the show, right, you know, having a rehearsal during the day and then having a performance at night in front of an audience. So it was kind of thrilling, but you know, that was certainly one of the toughest things and one of the most exciting things, I guess, about it. Now, was there a lot of interplay between Terrence McNally, the director, and the cast? And uh, oh, very much, this? very much. Yeah, he was there at most rehearsals, and uh, a lot of discussion between him and the director, and sometimes the actors. You know, uh, about you know different elements of the play, but certainly, you know, it was he was writing it. It was not as if, as though we had lots of say in what was happening, but the, certainly the director and he uh, worked a lot on changes and things, and we were right in there with him. You know. Uh, there seems to be a definite theme with the show. I mean, a lot of gay plays in the past have been, you know, they really try to focus on the momentous occasions. And uh-huh. in, in, a, in a lot of ways, this seems to be probably maybe that's where the title came from, I'm going to take a guess, is from the fact that a lot of the scenes and the characters are set away from anything having to do with the movement. Um, for instance, there's a scene where the riots are going on with Stonewall, but your character and a bunch of people are in a musical theater bar away from it not wanting to... Right, right. Yeah, that was sort of, uh, I think the play, even before we were working on it, has gone through a lot of incarnations, workshops, and there was a production in Philadelphia last year, which apparently I hear uh, was quite different, quite a different play altogether. And and, uh, I think Terrence had said that early on there was a scene at Stonewall where actually there were people coming in with bloody heads and from the riots and, you know, the elements are, it was right in there with it. But then he ended up finding this approach where it was sort of a a sideline sort of thing and sort of of a storyline. I don't think I certainly have never come across point of view sort of thing where there are two music theater queens and, and a group of, you know, it's in a piano bar sort of like the monster is today and or or uh, Marie's crisis or something they they sort of represent an earlier generation than the generation of the younger people having the the riots outside and they're sort of in an enclosed little cocoon of world with the, that they feel safe in and uh, they're confronted by their world kind of you know it's right outside at the front door and and uh, a young sort of act I don't want to call him an activist because at the time it's not really the activist sort of period but a young kid who's sort of just about to go get involved in the rally and the and the riots, who sort of confronts them about it and about their complacency and their uh, passiveness to this whole world-changing thing that's going on. Or I guess they didn't at the time. Terence has made a point of that these people didn't know that this was this would be an historical event that would always be talked about that night. It was just something that they were. It was a a crisis point and a, that turned into something bigger. Um, 
in any case, so there's these people in their enclosed little world, and they're sort of confronted with the fact. And then a drag queen comes into the into the Stonewall, and at the time, even in gay bars, it was drag was actually kind of against the law, or you you could certainly get arrested for being in drag. And so the he's the drag queen is actually ridiculed and uh, almost thrown out of the bar by the bartender. She kind of makes herself, you know, takes control and sort of. Uh, makes a point and inspires my character, who's one of the kind of uh, traditional show queen kind of guys, to kind of, you know, think about what's going on. And they, 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 my character and Michael McElroy's character in the show sort of have a bit of, of an epiphany and sort of think maybe we need to go out there and at least see what's going on in this world, you know. And the scene, well, I won't say how the scene ends because it's the end of Act One, but come see it. It's a, kind of an interesting angle that I don't think has been approached before that you've seen before. Now, you've done the full Monty before, and, and this. How many plays have you been naked in? Uh, this is just my second. My <laughs> second. I'm only naked in Terrence McNally plays. Yeah, it's, it's rather an intimate scene. It's actually a love scene, which is, which is really sweet. I was sort of discussing this with my mom when we were talking about it. I was like, I don't think you can come see this show <laughs> because it takes place in a gay bathhouse. And I was like, I'm, I'm okay about, you know, doing this scene. And, but it's kind of like, I can't have my mom watching me have sex in a gay bathhouse in any case. But then I just I'd eventually came to grips with the fact and got over it again <laughs> because my acting partner in the scene, uh, Kelly O'Coin, is straight and married, so I can't really... Uh, and he's and his mom's already come to see it, so <laughs> they, she can handle it. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Just that it's actually a love scene, which is what makes it kind of sweet. They're discovering that they're in love with each other, as well as the the fact that it happens to be in a gay bathhouse. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. I was uh, certainly we had our trepidations about it um, early on, mostly about getting naked. But I was also um, I'm, I'm a gay actor, so it's. Not that that makes a big difference. Well, it kind of does make a difference, really, in a certain way, because you have to figure. Uh, and when I discovered Kelly was doing the show and that he was straight and all, I thought that would be even more intense because it's going to be like, oh, man, you have to kind of be making out with this guy who kind of, you know, whatever. It's just not quite. It made it more nerve wracking. And then, but Kelly's so fantastic and he's just he's such a wonderful actor and a wonderful person that, you know, just was never an issue. You know, it was much more the two of us thinking, oh my God, how, how naked we're going to be. So, but it turned out, you know, not to be too bad. Our biggest concern is how cold it is backstage. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it was one of your first things, but I know very early on you were involved with one of my favorite musicals, Big River. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was my first uh, Broadway show in back in, I guess I started in 87, I believe. I when, Right when I moved, I moved to New York in 86, and right when I got here. So it was actually 86, and then I went on the road. I went on the road in Big River in 87, so. And that was a wonderful, thrilling experience, the whole thing. Yeah, I loved it. Before we started the interview, I heard you strumming. <coughs> I don't know if by any chance you feel comfortable maybe singing uh, a brief verse from one of the songs. Oh, I, I, I don't, I, uh... I don't even know what key would do it in, but... So, let's give it a shot. River in the rain Sometimes at night you look like a white train Winding your way away somewhere River, I love you, don't you care when you're on the run Winding someplace just trying to find the sun Whether the sunshine, whether the rain 
River, I love you just the same. But sometimes, in a time of trouble, when you're out of hand and your muddy bubbles roll across my floor, carrying away the things I treasure, hell, there ain't no way to measure why I love you more. Than I did the day before when you're on the run. in some place just trying to find the sun. Whether the sunshine, whether the rain. River, I love you just the same. Something like that. <laughs> People have till April 22nd to catch some men. Is that right? April 22nd at this point, yeah. Uh, there's a possible another week extension. We do not, haven't heard about that yet. So Though, though I heard a reason why everybody's hoping oh, yeah, we, for it. <laughs> we're all hoping not. We also love doing the play, so we certainly want to do it as long as we can till the 29th. But there's quite a few of us who, who will get our insurance weeks. So <laughs> that's always a good an actor concern, believe me. Well, I thank you so much for coming down and sharing your thoughts on the show and some of the other things, Romaine. Oh, sure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Up close. Before we get to our interview with Karen Ziembo, we didn't think we were going to have anything from Curtains to play for you. But last minute, a sampler CD came through, and so we do indeed have the reprise of Thinking of Him and I Miss the Music, which is performed by Karen Ziemba and Jason Danielli. So let's hear it. Thinking of me, only of me. What was I thinking, spending each moment? Each waking day thinking of me Shutting you out Sometimes Making you wait Sometimes Too self-involved to say how I do need you But why pretend I missed the music I missed my friend. I missed my friend. No need to wonder what I would do. I choose the music I make with you. All right, well, I'm sitting here with Tony Award winner Karen Ziemba in her dressing room backstage after a matinee of curtains. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. We had a great audience today. There's, uh, it was pouring rain outside, and it's always nice to, to uh, hole up in a theater and watch a show after you've been, like, trudging through puddles and with, you know, um, rain bonnets and, and umbrellas and, and all that kind of paraphernalia. It's just so nice to be calm and cozy and just waiting for that overture to start. It's the best place to be. Now, you actually have 
now quite a history of doing some cannery neb stuff here. I remember when I was younger, I, I wore out the record for And the World Goes Round. Oh, yes. And the World Goes Round was an incredible It wasn't recording. a record then, but... <laughs> but And the World Goes Round was the first time I'd worked with uh, John Kander and Fred Ebb, and it was a compilation of all their stuff, a lot of their great stuff, a review of sorts, and it was... Uh, yeah, that was kind of like what really put me on the map. I mean, I'd been in the business for a while, but I'd never originated anything. I'd always, like, replaced people in shows. And so this was kind of like my first foray into being the original person doing it and being on the, the, the original cast album. So it was really great for me. And there was only five of us in the show, so it was a big deal. It was really nice. And then I went on to do... Um, Steel Pier for John Cantor and Fred Ebb, which they wrote. That um, got you a Tony nomination as Yes, well. my first Tony nomination. And then I replaced somebody in Chicago, which was also a Cantor and Ebb show running, which was The Revival, on Broadway, and then Curtains. So, sort of in the Cantor and Ebb family, which is nice. Good place, <laughs> that's a good place to be, too. Yeah, they definitely are, you know, some fantastic writers. As I watch the show, just, you know, realizing, you know, that, again... They write some of the catchiest stuff around. And yes, they do. And uh, Fred Ebb passed away a, a few years ago now, but uh, a lot of these songs were written about, you know, eight to ten years ago when uh, he was still in his, you know, the prime of life and was uh, actually, even when he was getting into his 70s, he was still writing incredible stuff. And he, some of that stuff is in this show still, and it's, you can, you can tell he's he has a way of, poking fun at something but also doing it very cleverly without being vulgar it's just clever and catchy and very intelligent for the listeners who haven't seen the show or heard about it yet this is kind of like a show within a show where you curtains is a show about um a broadway troupe that's out of town in in boston at the colonial theater in 1959 and we were putting on a show and it's uh starring uh, the leading lady is um former film star and she's not much of a singer and so the people in the cast are wondering how is this going to work out I mean she's well you'll find out when you come to see the show what happens but uh, we're not doing so well and so what happens is, is that uh, she takes a turn for the worse and we still have to put on the show but what happens is people start dropping like flies they're getting murdered left and right and so this investigative this uh, detective comes in played by David Hyde Pierce the wonderful magnificent David Hyde Pierce in more ways than one, and he um, he tries to solve the murder. And, and you very... actually play the lyricist. Yes, my character, Georgia Hendricks, is the lyricist of the show. She writes the, the words to the songs in the score of the show within the show, which is called Robin Hood. It is the Western version of Robin Hood. Um, but they wear chaps and 10-gallon hats and carry guns. Six shooters. Uh, <laughs> so the guys look great. <laughs> um, and I take over when the leading lady is found murdered. So because I, Georgia Hendricks, before she became a lyricist, used to be a performer. That's how she first started in the, in the, in, uh, the theater business. And well, how does it feel playing the lyricist in a Kander and Ed musical? It's great. Uh, it's I, I actually my prototype for her is uh, for Georgia is uh, Betty Comden, who was a very famous lyricist at that time. She never worked with John Kander, but she worked with some of the greatest great composers. She and uh, her partner Adolph Green um, wrote like Singing in the Rain and uh, The Bandwagon and Wonderful Town and On the Town, and she was a very savvy 
urbane songwriter and also was a great performer. She was in the original On the Town, so that's kind of who I mold her after, you know, mold myself after. Now, you get a great dance number that's in Act One. Yes. Out of this. Yes. Um, uh, there's this great um, number that takes place in the saloon called That Away, and it's all about this this uh, woman who wants to get her man and how she's how she's going to get him, how she's going to round him up, so to speak. And I do the song with all the rest of my saloon girl buddies and all the cowboys, and it's pretty rousing, very fun, very colorful. <laughs> and we do a lot of very risky, dangerous choreography, which is fun and uh, scary. <laughs> <laughs> Like scary how did something? Well, you have to turn upside down a lot, and you have to jump up on things a lot, and you have to kick high and kick over people's heads, and you just hope that they duck <laughs> at the right time. Now, Everybody's responsible for everybody else in a live show, and it's just have to really concentrate and uh, be present, and make sure that you take a nap in between shows so you can, you know, pay attention. Now you're, but you're no stranger to dance. You've danced in a lot of your shows. In fact, you're Tony. Award came from Contact, right? Which uh, was pretty much all dancing. Yeah, I uh, I started out dancing as, a, as, a, as a, when I was six years old. So I've been doing it all my life, and so it's something that has been so much a part of me, but also helped me get into the business in the first place because I um, always sang too, but because I could dance as well as I could, it helped me. You know, I was able to fill in casts that were only using, say, like four singer-dancers for the entire, you know, female side of the cast um, because you had to be able to do everything. And nowadays that's more and more the way they're casting live musical theater because in the old days they used to have, like, the singing chorus, the dancing chorus, the acting people who were the principals, and now everybody has to do a little bit of everything. And so I was fortunate enough to have all that training, and, and uh, so I've worked a lot, which is great. And... Um, continue to dance when I when I can and when I'm asked to. So this show, they cast me and they felt, well, maybe we should make this number into a little bit of a dance number, which they did. <laughs> I was like, are you sure you want me to do that? They demonstrate something for me. They have the the dance cat, the, the assistant choreographer demonstrating something, and she's like this crack little dancer who's just amazing, Joanne Hunter. And I say, oh, I don't know if I can do that. But then I try it, and you'd eventually get it right. Well, a little bit about Contact. How did you end up getting involved in, in that show? In Contact, back in uh, uh, back at uh, Lincoln Center Theater 2000, I had worked with the choreographer-director Susan Stroman before. I had done Crazy For You and, and The World Goes Round and uh, the Sondheim Celebration at Carnegie Hall uh, with her and 110 in the Shade at City Opera. We had done a lot of shows together. And she asked me... Actually, I was doing Chicago on Broadway, and she... She called me up and she said, uh, Karen, I want you to um, listen to this, seed, this this cassette of this music. I'm thinking about noodling around with this little story I'm, work, I'm working on for Lincoln Center Theater. I'm doing it like as a workshop, a preliminary to doing a real show. And I listened to this cassette and it was all this classical music. And I was thinking, what the heck is this? This sounds like ballet. And... I didn't have any, any idea what she had in mind and we went into this room and she started creating this character, this woman in this Italian restaurant who was going out for her anniversary with her husband and she had a very vivid fantasy life and she was actually, a, this woman was like 
verbally abused in her own life and had had kind of a tough life, but she would go into her fantasies whenever she heard this classical music and she'd become this prima ballerina. It's hard to describe without actually seeing it, but it's it was very effective and very moving that this this poor woman could could hear this beautiful music and go into her fantasies and become the belle of the ball and become loved and cherished by everyone in her in her fantasy life, in her mind. And it was a fully danced... It had, there, there was a little bit of dialogue, so you found out who this woman was, but um, through her dancing, you it was conveyed the story, her heartache, and also her joy in becoming this other being. And... It was uh, yeah. That was my that was my Tony Ward. It was I think I related to her a lot. She just she she was a lot of fun to play. It was also very sad to play too. Um, I did it for two years, and after two years, I was I was pretty much spent <laughs> because emotionally it was to conjure her up after a while. You know, got to be very tiring and very sad. But for the time being, it was very worthwhile and obviously fulfilling. Well, I think, you know, it's fair to say that Contact maybe kind of led off this whole decade as to what has been a lot of surprises and upsets at the Tony Awards of unconventional choices. Did anybody in Contact really expect that they were even going to get nominated for Best Musical, let alone win? No, there was a big furor about um, the nominations uh, with Contact because it was not using original music. It was using music that was being piped in, so to speak. It was um, songs that were already recorded. But because it was still a show that had music and dancing and it was telling a story, it was still theater. It wasn't, you know, anything, wasn't conveying anything new. There was no new score that was written and it wasn't an old score being rehashed, it, but, but there was no live orchestra, so there was a big bone of contention about, is this really a, a musical? And it was hard to say. It was sort of like a play with music, but it was also a musical too because there was some singing in it and a lot of dancing. It's, and of course then moving out which came later, the Twyla Tharp thing was all dancing too, but they had a, a live band, so that was sort of a musical, but what really is it? So, But you're right, there. it, it really led the way for more unconventional um, things being nominated for new musicals, and why not? You know, I say it's... And then Curtains, of course, now, which is, it, which is based... Is, the formula is very much like an old-fashioned musical, the way they used yeah, to be written with a book and a... Watching yeah, it, I actually felt like I was watching a revival. Yes, way. It was, uh-huh. and it's, but not, which is kind of yeah. cool. But, yeah, I think Contact did pave the way. But I thought it was the fact that it was such a moving and provocative show, and people still t- ask me about it and talk about how they felt it was one of the best things they'd ever seen and most wonderful evenings in the theater. So when you get comments like that, it why not call it theater? Why not say it's worth you know all the kudos and awards that it can muster? Did it make it any sweeter at all, winning your Tony for something that was so hard fought for even being considered as a eligible? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I when um, Susan Sturman came to me with his, with his ideas I'd mentioned before, I, I, and we worked on it, I kept bringing like friends and colleagues to see the, the, the run-throughs and the workshop of it because I said, do you think this is any good? Is it? Do you like it? Do you think it has any legs? They'd say, Karen, you should stay with this show. It's very moving, and you're really good in it. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. And then it turned out to be this big, you know, big hit because of the way it made people feel and they walked away just full of wonder and, 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 and they went they had thoughts in the during the evening that made them think about things they hadn't thought of in a long time and they also felt like they could dance too which is a good thing as you're walking up the aisle 
that's what it, that's what live theater is about. It's making you feel feel something, whether it be joy or sadness or elation or just being just drop dead funny. Um, getting your money's worth. These days, it's about getting your money's worth. <laughs> Speaking of that. Speaking of that, I think curtains get your money's worth. My gosh. How many names are in there? How did they get all these names in the show? Well. And how did you all fight for your, uh, you know, your space on we, the marquee? We got so, so many good people to be in curtains because, well, first of all, it was Candor and Ab. And then the people that helped take the place of, you know, Peter Stone and Candor and Ab, who passed away, who started working on curtains, like Rupert Holmes who's also just the most incredibly gifted and nice man, who is our book writer and uh, co-lyric writer with now with John Kander. So you've got this incredible you know, pedigree at the top, and Scott Ellis, who's a great director and who's so loyal to so many people and has worked with a lot of these people before. He'd worked with David Hyde Pierce on Frasier. He'd worked with the Dead Monk in many things. Both Dead Monk and I were in Steel Pier. Yeah, Dead Monk's another canner and Ebb. Right, that uh, Scott Ellis had directed. So it was very much a family affair. It's and Ernie Sabella. And Ernie Sabella, who did Chicago with me and has known those guys for a while. It's a... Uh, it's another Frasier alum. Uh, Edward Hibbert. Yes, Edward Hibbert. Right. So it's all about you want to do the best work and play the best roles and work with the best people. And... The time just flies by. It's it's so sweet, and it's not that you don't work hard and you're not exhausted, but when you're out there, it's so much fun. And David Hyde Pierce, who is the mm-hmm. captain of our ship now, since uh, we've already opened the sh- we've opened the show and we're up and running, he is so generous and so gifted as an artist and such a wonderful human being that it trickles down to all the rest of us. And he really sets the tone. I mean, he's just, great in it, but you know, the show really is an ensemble show. It and is an ensemble for, show. And even for how prominent his face is and you know his name, of course, he's right. known, his role isn't huge for a musical theater lead. It's a very Yes, he, it's, he's piece. very much like what you say the, is the camera of the show. He's the eye looking in at all of us, wanting to be part of it. There's so many different stories involved in this one story. He's, but he is our, he is the man above the title, so to speak. He is the guy <laughs> who we look up to and we're, how nice to look up to somebody not only as a, a star and as a celebrity but also as somebody who is such a great actor and who's just a lovely human being it's, it makes it easy to come to work and you look forward to it and he loves being with all of us and so it makes you feel good about yourself and it makes you feel responsible for everybody else and want to be and want to work on this team because that's what it is it's eight shows a week for a long time how long have you signed on for? A year, along so. with Deb and and Edward and 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 David, we've all signed up for quite a while. And it, and I've done long runs before, and a year goes by very quickly. Before we end the interview, I want to say that I first heard about you and first saw you when I was a college student watching the Sondheim celebration at Carnegie Hall, and you were performing sooner or later. With um, Bill Irwin. Bill Irwin, yes. Uh-huh. There, there was a great performance. It was comically great. You Thank performed you. it well. What, what was that? That was also fairly early, still in your leading yes. career. Wasn't yes, it? I had just done "In the World Goes Round" with um, Susan Stroman and Scott Ellis, and they were the director and choreographer on the Sondheim Celebration at Carnegie Hall. They brought me into that to do this number with Bill Irwin, and she choreographed it, and it was so clever. And <laughs> and it was with a full orchestra. It was pretty amazing being part of that. 
was kind of a star-studded evening. But her work, Susan Stroman's work in that was exemplary. And she's one of these people that can make me do anything. She just says, she calls me KZ, Karen Ziemba. Um, those are my initials. She That became my nickname. Um, it's like, I want you to lay on this piano bench and slide it across the stage and then do a forward roll into on, in between his legs. And I say, okay, let's try it. And then we just did it. You know, that's she just expects you to try anything and do anything and risk anything. And I, you say yes, and if you don't crack your head open, and you keep it in. <laughs> you just do it. Well, in an evening of great performances, I think you're definitely one of the standouts of the show because of that great choreography. We're going to play. We're going to close this interview. I'm going to play the song, but I definitely. And it's urge, a great song too that Sondheim wrote for the movie Dick Tracy too. Yeah, but I urge songs. people to not just stop the song I play here, but the this, the DVDs out and I don't, the performance is definitely not complete without them seeing your choreography. I think so, so. too. It's a, it's actually when you listen to the recording of it, um, because I'm doing so much choreography and and turning inside out and doing some contortionism that it sound, the singing sounds a little bit strained, but when you see what, what I'm doing along with it, you go, oh, I get it. <laughs> you understand. <laughs> and you have to see Bill Irwin's reactions, too, and what he's doing, too, which is amazing, because he's so funny. He's such a great clown and also a wonderful actor, and what a gentleman. Boy, I've really been lucky. I've had some great leading men in my career. Um, I hope I have good karma, and I'm bringing that to myself. Well, I thank you very much for taking some time out. I know you've been doing a lot of charity events, too. Is This, this week we're doing the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. We, I just went out into the house yesterday after the show and collected. We sold our programs and souvenir uh, posters with all of our signatures on it to the audience, whoever could uh, come up with another few dollars after they've spent so much on their tickets. But they, they did. They really did uh, give to the cause, which was wonderful and got their great you know signed posters and stuff so it's a busy it's a busy couple weeks right now during the holidays all right well karen zimba thank you so much curtains definitely check it out and here's sooner or later from Sondheim, a celebration at carnegie hall (laughs) thank you thank you mike sooner or later you're gonna be You faced it, I always get my man Sooner or later you're gonna decide Sooner or later there's nowhere to hide Baby, it's time so I wasted in chatter
retailers and curtains the original broadway cast will be out shortly the call board all right everybody we had a podcast that gave us some promotion so we'd like to return the favor and let everybody know about the feast of fools podcast which features cocktails gossip news and interviews with some of the world's most eclectic celebrities newsmakers and musicians they are an uncommon voice for an uncommon community Feast of Fools exists to serve, inform, entertain, and inspire people everywhere about the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered experience. They work for progress in whatever form it may take, social, cultural, economic, or political, and challenge their audience and themselves for self-improvement, exploration, and scientific thinking without spiritual sacrifice. Oh yeah, and mostly it's funny. So you can visit the Feast of Fools podcast at www.feastoffools.net. Check them out. Also, anybody who's an aspiring producer, the Commercial Theater Institute Producers Workshop is having their three-day program from May 4th to the 6th. It's open to anyone interested in producing, co-producing, or investing in the commercial theater, Broadway, off-Broadway, touring Broadway, and elsewhere. The three-day program offers practical information of interest to prospective producers, general managers, and investors. Each session consists of presentations and panel discussions with experienced producers, general manager, entertainment attorneys, and managing directors who offer specific cases histories that illuminate the various means of developing theatrical productions. This program is of special interest to anyone exploring relationships between the for-profit and not-for-profit sectors in the development of a theater project. 
Yeah, for registration and more information, just like everything in the call board, you can visit www.broadwaybullet.com, click on the Volume 110 show notes, and all the links for everything we talk about this entire program are right there. And lastly, on April 23rd and 24th, the annual Easter Bonnet Competition to benefit Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS is taking place. Um, also, in other news, we are going to be looking for some summer interns, so if you're in New York City or coming to New York City and you'd like to get involved, please give me an email at info at broadwaybullet.com. doesn't have to take up a lot of time, and it can be flexibly worked around your schedule, but we're definitely looking for some enthusiastic people to help out. And on the contest birthday party notes, I emailed all the winners of the Broadway Bullet birthday bubble blowout thing. And uh, like I said, not everybody's going to be able to make it. So if you would like to attend, please email me at info at broadwaybullet.com. Not only are we going to see the show on Thursday, April 26th at 7.30 p.m., but afterwards we'll hang out in the lounge and have some drinks. And I'd just like to get to know you guys and you can meet me too. Uh, probably be very fun and I'm sure you'll have a lot in common with uh, people who are hanging out. It's a great way to meet a lot of people. So again, if you are interested in going, it is free and you can get a pair of tickets. It's info at broadwaybullet.com. On the boards. Well, you often hear actors use the words, what I really want to do is direct, but I don't know how many times you've heard a director saying, but what I really want to do is write a play. But as our current guest Rob Urbanati has done. He started off his career in directing and then moved into playwriting and now does both furiously. How are you doing today? Everything is great, thank you. In fact, you've got two plays, two different plays, one that you're writing and one that you're directing, opening on the same day. Is that yeah, correct? they virtually open the same night, April 21st. How are you juggling this all? It is juggling. Um, the plays are West Moon Street, which I wrote, which is an adaptation of a somewhat obscure Oscar Wilde story called Lord Arthur Savile's Crime. And that's being directed by Davis McCallum and produced by the Prospect Theatre Company, opening at the Hudson Guild Theatre. And the play that I'm directing is called The President and Her Mistress. It's a futuristic comedy written by Jan Buttram, and that's opening, opening at the Abington on the same night. You directed a long time before even starting to write, wasn't that correct? Yeah. Um, basically, I was sort of like a theater fan, a kind of theater fanatic. I had a job with Home Box Office as a theater consultant for a long time. Why did, what did HBO do as a theater consultant? I know, isn't that funny? Um, <laughs> really? really? What, did they, what did they do as a theater consultant? At first, it was they were just looking for material, um, sometimes writers. So it was it actually helped me direct, though, because... Um, ultimately, I would go to the theater, cover theater, and when I filled out my evaluation forms for home box office, they weren't interested in the production because they weren't planning on producing it, but they were interested in the quality of the writing. So I had to separate what a writer does from what the director and actors do, which is a, sort of a difficult thing to do, but it was specifically, again, HBO wasn't interested in the production. I did that for a long time, perhaps too long, Michael. I got, um, you know, kind of tired of it. But I did see something like 2,000 plays over a period of like five or six years. And HBO wanted everything covered. Um, HBO was kind of just starting. This was in the mid to late 80s. And my taste is really eclectic. So on the one hand, it was fun. I got to see a lot of stuff. But I think like a lot of people that are... Uh, 
I don't mean to say peripheral to the arts, but that are like observing or fans of the arts. I just started to want to be more hands-on. And again, because of the nature of this job, which was to separate, to, to um, evaluate the quality of writing apart from production, I got kind of clear on what a director did, and I just became interested in directing. So I started to do that in the late 80s. Now, why didn't you just ask for the scripts from the PR reps? <laughs> <laughs> um, HBO was funny about that. I think sometimes it was rights issues. I think sometimes it was that they were specifically looking for, I remember, star vehicles. So uh, at the bottom of this evaluation form, it said star potential. And sometimes they would actually, before I went to the theater, they would say, see if you can find something for Carol Burnett. We're looking for something for Carol Burnett. So, you know, it was a particular um, type of theater job. And as you, I think, suggested at the beginning, not something one associates directly with home box office. One upshot of that, though, was, um, and I take credit with the hundreds of other people who did this, but I did send HBO to the Whoopi Goldberg show, which was playing at a little, little theater in Chelsea, and ultimately they ended up doing um, her first uh, television appearance. Wow, so now this inspired you to move into directing. Yeah. And how was that? Well, what was good was that I had friends, like, who were actors and who were in theater who were really good because I think that my strengths were pictorial, you know, visual. Like, I, I hadn't studied theater and I hadn't studied actor training or anything. So, but I did have a sense of movement and composition and what kind of the final product was like. But luckily, I had friends who were good actors who would, you know, help me get them who would get themselves really to the place where good directors need to take actors, you know, understanding how to build character. So at first I was like relying on them. But I wasn't sure that I would like it, like like directing. I also wasn't sure that I, because of these sort of communication things, that I was going to be great at it. But I got this opportunity to, um, just curiously, somebody who worked at HBO, her parents ran a theater in Omaha, Nebraska. And she asked if I wanted to direct a show there. And I went there. And there were lots of theaters. It actually has Omaha's kind of hip. I don't know if you know this. It's a little. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's a little bit hip. There's a great rock Omaha and roll people. Scene. Come on, email me. Tell me, <clears throat> is this true? Yeah. I think what what it used to be, Michael, was that like Kansas City was sort of the epicenter for hipness in the Midwest. But Omaha really, you know, it has a great rock and roll scene. It has an experimental theater scene. It has it has stuff going on for the Midwest. In other words, if you live around it and you're, you know, young and ambitious and artistic, you'd move to Omaha. Um, so this was kind of ideal because it was like a place to really learn the craft and not under sort of watchful eyes, you know. I also had been living in New York for about seven or eight years, and I was kind of ready to be away from it. And um, I have a rent-stabilized apartment, so I kept that. And I stayed in Omaha for about four years, and I directed like 40 plays. I directed at dinner theaters. I directed for the Shakespeare Festival. I directed at experimental theaters, at the Nebraska Repertory, which does like Noel Coward. So I, that's where I really, really learned how to direct. It was a great like training ground, and I'm forever grateful to those folks. Still in touch with them. So at what point did you switch over to also deciding you wanted to write? <clears throat> um, it wasn't like I was hoping to write or, you know, wished I could. It just really never entered my mind. But I did go to grad school um, to get a Ph.D. in Oregon. And there was a radio announcement about, and this is what they said, a lesbian love triangle in Indiana led to murder. And I thought, 
lesbians at a Indiana junior high school. It just seemed so strange. So I was intrigued by that and forgot about it, moved back to New York, and this was like 95-ish, and there were true crime books that were written about this very murder. So um, I was in the Lincoln Center Director's Lab when I first got back. They talked about adapting your own plays, like how to make a career as a director in New York, and they said one thing to do is to create your own work. Um, And I had these true crime books, and they actually had the letters, Michael, that these junior high school girls had written to each other. And the letters were fantastic. They were sometimes like raunchy, sometimes sort of just tender and innocent. The girls were like 12 and 13. Sometimes they were very threatening and violent, but the letters themselves were really potent. So I thought that I would create like an epistolary kind of play, you know, just a play based on these notes and letters. They were actually the notes that the girls threw to each other in class, which had been preserved. So when I started to do that and I put them all on the computer, It just became clear that, you know, if two girls were writing about the same event, writing notes to each other about something that happened, I had enough information and also enough idea of how they spoke, how they communicated, to actually write a scene. So I started to write a play that now had scenes and that was loosely based on this true crime. And that was my first play. That was called Hazelwood Junior High. And I was really lucky because I had directed some readings at the new group, and I gave the play to Scott Elliott. This is like the major um, playwrights sort of hate to hear this, but like to hear it. But I gave him the play on a Monday, and on Thursday of that week, he said that it was gonna that he would be directing it the following season at the new group. <laughs> so that doesn't happen too often. It hasn't happened since, Michael. <laughs> <clears throat> How many plays since has it been now? How, what, what is West Moon Street now? How many plays is this? I for think you? it's like you know I've written some one acts. Um, so, you know, I would really have to count, but not a lot. I really, um, I'm still principally a director. I wrote uh, less than 10, seven or eight, I think, working on a couple of new things now. All right. So uh, West Moon Street, what's some of the exciting things uh, <clears throat> about it? Um, it has a great director, Davis McCallum. Um, it's a style that I think is uh, difficult for American actors, maybe for British actors. I think Shakespeare is easier than this kind of high style that Oscar Wilde and, to some degree, Noel Coward is in. So I think we're in good shape there. Um, A funny thing happened, though, regarding um, Hazelwood Junior High. After that, I wanted to write something that was really different from it in terms of language. Again, these were teenage girls, and I wanted to write something that was the polar opposite of that. And so I thought, ooh, Oscar Wilde, that might be interesting. And I read his, you know, fiction, short fiction, um, his, his one novel. And I loved this story, Lord Arthur Savile's Crime. It's about a guy um, who's engaged to be married. Uh, Lord Arthur is his name. And he, a couple of weeks before the wedding, he goes to a reception where there's a palm reader. In the play, it's called a chiromantist. And the palm reader reads his palm and tells him that he is going to commit a murder. And being a proper English gentleman, he feels that it's best to get this murder out of the way before he gets married. But also being a proper English gentleman, he's almost completely incompetent at the skills required to murder. So the play is about his hapless attempts to try to do away with someone before he gets married. Like all good while stuff, there's a social critique under this, the sort of um, bumbling efforts of this man who has had every opportunity thrown at him and all kinds of you know educational opportunities who um, is still incredibly goofy and naive. 
And there's also this sort of funny, sort of murder mystery kind of element to it that I thought really gave it a sort of dramatic drive. So it's not as, it's not in the style of the importance of being earnest. It's not as um, sort of superficially comic as that. It has a little bit of, you know, it, it, it deals with murder. But I started to say the connection with Hazelwood was that after I had written West Moon Street, it occurred to me that despite the polar, you know, opposite styles in terms of language, that they were sort of about the same thing, that they were really both about societies or sort of um, contexts where murder is sort of a vehicle. Neither the girls in Hazelwood nor the, the characters, Lord Arthur and others in West Moon Street, um, really see murder for what it is. It's just a means to an end to achieve something they want. So the plays ended up being curiously similar. As a director first, and as you say, a playwright second, do you just find a subject you want to write about passionately, write about it, and then try to find somebody to do it? Or do you usually have, like, somebody's interested and goes, I kind of like to do one of your plays. Do you got somebody and you write it up? That's actually a really great question. I feel still like a, a, a new writer or a kind of a distinct writer in that I have tremendous respect for writers who, like, scribble away in their turrets and, you know, pour their hearts and passions into plays. I've never done that. I like to get produced. Um, I've been in the business kind of long enough that um, I'm not saying that I write to be commercial. I mean, Hazelwood High, I mean, Hazelwood Junior High, Michael, had, you know, they lit a girl on fire. So it wasn't the most obviously. Violence. <laughs> it was always commercial. Right. But <laughs> but I, I knew, like, I reduced the number of characters in that so that it would be easier to be produced. I know that, as you know, there's tons of interest in Oscar Wilde so that it would increase the chances of it getting produced. Um, I like to figure out what the production opportunities are for material that I'm interested in before I, you know, put pen to paper. And I'm not bragging about that in some ways. Again, you know, I wish I was John Guare and just wrote whatever came to me. But I kind of like to figure out what's going to happen with it. Um, I wrote a musical this year called Shangri-La based on um, the girl group from um, the 60s. And I knew that there would be interest in that. And I also work at Queen's Theater in the Park, and um, the Shangri-Las were from Queen's, so like that. I wrote an adaptation this year of a Howard Zinn, Anthony Arnov book called Voices of the People's History of the United States. And that, I knew that the Culture Project, where I had done some work, would be interested in that. So... Does that answer your question? Yeah, I yeah. kind of figure out where I could pitch it and then don't write it till I know that there is interest. So we've got West Moon Street that you've written, opening at the Prospect Theatre Company, April 21st, and then The President and Her Mistress, your latest directing effort <laughs> at the Abingdon, which uh, opens about the same time, and we'll have links on our website for people to find out more information. That's fantastic. Okay. Well, I thank you very much for coming down here and sharing a lot of very interesting information for really, our listeners. I appreciate that. Thank you, Michael. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side. And I indeed have a lot to be positive about this week. I, I spent a wonderful Sunday evening at the Palace Theater seeing Legally Blonde. I enjoyed it tremendously. It's just so much fun. The music is great. Every number seems to be a big spectacular dance number and it all works i think laura bell bundy is fantastic a very talented young lady i love the dogs i had a great time with the dogs some great acting there i just had a ball as 
as most of the young audience did also, uh, I found that after the show from Michael Rupert that people are ready on their third and fourth visits to it. So I think it's going to be a fantastic hit. And as I told Michael before here, that there's only one ballad in the show. And the ballad, surprisingly, is the title song, which uh, Miss Bundy does sometime towards the end of the show when she's kind of let go by the law professor after she turns his head on her down. She's thinking of going back to California, and she does, she does this ballad called Legally Blonde. Other than that, everything is upbeat. In this year of many choices, I would say that this is my top choice, I believe, to win. I know I went crazy over Spring Awakening, and Spring Awakening is a wonderful show. But when I think about it, it's a bit floored. Uh, I had spoken about this before, that when you get to the end of that show, you're not quite sure exactly what happens. And they just lead into a Seasons of Love sound alike at the end of the show. It's still a wonderful show, and I still love it. I don't want you to get me wrong, you know. But uh, after seeing Legally Blonde, I'd say that it is my choice to win Best Musical. There's one great number that takes place in the courtroom. Is he gay or is he European? It's just a fun number. It turns into a big ensemble piece. And the opening song, Oh My God, You Guys, using the internet I am expression, OMG, great opening number, uh, kind of like Good Morning Baltimore and Hairspray. It's kind of a parallel there, but uh, it's a great opening number. Well, just everything is bouncy and pink, if, if you will. I hope I'm not giving you a spoiler here, but there's a wonderful number in the second act where the UPS guy gives off a Lorraine, the character Lorraine, his middle name, Brandon, and they go into this big Irish step dancing number. I thought it would be a fun idea next week at the Easter Bonnet show, possibly Pirate Queen and Legally Blonde can have kind of a step dancing runoff. I thought that would be a fine idea, kind of dueling step dancers. Because they do the same steps that they do in Pirate Queen. And it's anyone who knows, who's thinking about that show, I think it got a big laugh from the audience because of it. And if you want to spoof what they're doing in Pirate Queen, and that's going to be everyone's favorite spoof this year, I'm sure. I still love it. Forgive me. I still love it. <laughs> I'm probably going to be chastised for a long time for that, considering the reviews. I still think it's going to find an audience. Pirate Queen, that is. But... As far as best musical, Legally Blonde, this year is my choice. Although, I'm remiss, I haven't seen the uh, Kurt Vile LaDelaine show, Love Music. Uh, so I'm going to wait on that for a while. But I can't see it being much better than Legally Blonde. So go down to the Palace Theater and get your tickets because I'm sure it's going to be a hot one already. It's a, kind of a sellout. I think it did 98% last week. So... Uh, as I say, in the season of many choices, and it's a great season. And uh, if you remember my prediction, two of the biggest hits of the year, I said, would be the two giant revivals, Chorus Line and Les Mis. And if that isn't proving true, just read the 
box office receipts over the last few weeks. Uh, and you'll see that my prediction is actually coming true. But uh, go see Legally Blonde. Run down to the Palace Theater. Buy your tickets. I'm sure it will be there for a while. Once again, this is Marty Cooper. Stay on the positive side and keep laughing and singing. Take care. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. Sweet charity. We are talking with producer Philip Corso and musical director Amanda Martin from We Tell the Story. On April 30th, 2007, at 8 p.m. at the Lucia Lortel, there's going to be a very special event, We Tell the Story, which is going to be the music and lyrics of Flaherty and Aaron's to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation. We got uh, the producer and the accompanist to the event here with us to talk about it, and we're also going to hear a couple songs from the performers. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Well. Thank you. Well, first off, um, maybe let everybody know who doesn't, what a great... Uh, cause Make-A-Wish Foundation is? Well, uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation of Metro New York is a fantastic organization. Um, They give strength and joy to New York City children with life-threatening medical conditions. Um, Basically, they they have children that come to them uh, with with their final wish, and uh, they do everything they can in their power to grant it for them and their entire family to to ease the whole process of the life-threatening illness. It's it's an unbelievable organization that um, I'm just so proud and honored to really help support and, and to bring more awareness to. Now, Flaherty and Aaron certainly are one of my favorite composer teams, um, but I'm curious why you, why you chose Flaherty and Aaron's to go with for the... Well, I mean, so many of their songs are about love and hope and strength, and I mean, their music is so beautiful in itself. Uh, it just seemed like a perfect fit b- between the Make-A-Wish Foundation and so many of their musicals. I mean, if you look at Once in the Sound and Ragtime, they're just their journeys that they take, and each of these children really... In and in upon themselves to take a journey. From the time that they find out um, that they have this disease, you know, to the moment that they, they take these challenges with their families, it, it's, I just think it's a perfect combination. They're also really positive people, and I feel like they focus a lot on the evolution of people emotionally, psychologically, and not just dealing within the circumstances of their life, which is interesting, and it doesn't always necessarily mean that things flow as we think they're going to or anticipate them to, but the people undergo change and work on that actively, and that's really important. Now, what's it like uh, putting together like a one-night event like this, rehearsal-wise? What's the coordination involved? It's insane. Uh, <laughs> you have to be extremely flexible. Yes, I mean we have we have eleven performers, um, a lot of which are in Broadway shows. So you know, getting schedules, nine musicians, you know, everything, putting them together, it's. It's an unbelievable process, it's exciting, but it can be frustrating at times. It's, you, it's definitely a lot of work. You have to keep an open mind and be able to just roll with things as they unfold. Absolutely. And be understanding. Mm-hmm. And just know that we're all working toward one goal. I mean, everyone's donating their time, and everyone's putting so much hard energy and hard work into it that you know we're just trying to make it a positive work environment and trying to stay as positive as possible through the whole experience. Now, a couple of the cast members came in to perform some numbers with you, Amanda, playing. Uh, yes. Would you uh, like to tell us who's going to be performing this first number with you? Yes, Katie Kozlowski will be performing Back to Before from Ragtime. There was a time our happiness seemed never-ending. I was so sure that where we were heading was right. 
Life was a road so certain and straight and unbending. Our little road with never a crossroad in sight. Back in the days when we spoke in civilized voices, women in white and sturdy young men at the oar. Back in the days when I let you make all my choices, we can never go back to before. My feet were so solidly planted. You'd sail away while I turned my back to the sea. I was content, a princess asleep and enchanted. If I had dreams, then I let you dream them for me. Back in the days when everything seemed so much clearer. Women in white who knew what their lives held in store. Where are they now, those women who stared from the mirror? We can never go back to before. There are people out there unafraid of revealing that they might have a feeling or they might have been wrong there are people out there unafraid to feel sorrow unafraid of tomorrow unafraid to be weak unafraid to be Before we get to the second performance, I would like to add that uh, you guys have mentioned that there's you've actually got a couple sneak previews from Flair, T, and Aaron's. In we the do, absolutely. We've uh, been honored with the privilege of doing a couple songs from The Glorious Ones, which is a new show that's coming out um, in, in previews right now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's exciting to be able to do something um, and experience it, you know, something that's not been um, produced in New York. 
So I take it, did you have to coordinate with Larry T. Aarons to do this whole benefit? Yeah, they've been actively involved. I mean, Larry Lees is our music supervisor, um, and he wrote a whole bunch of new orchestrations with their approval. Um, and he's been absolutely amazing. And they've come in, and, and they've reworked the show with us and rewrote some of the orchestrations, picked a few new songs, some from Dessa Rose, um, some from Glorious Ones, and, and put together this amazing evening of entertainment. I, I think everyone's really going to enjoy it. You should definitely check it out if you can. All right, and now Amanda, who's singing the second song with you? This is going to be Jamal McDonald and Q Smith singing Wheels of a Dream from Ragtime as well. I see his face I hear his heartbeat I look in those eyes how wise they seem Well, when he is old enough I will show him America And he will ride On the wheels of a dream We'll go down south From there, California, or who knows where, and we will ride on the wheels of a dream. Yes, the wheels are turning for us, girl, and the times are starting to roll. Any man can get where he wants to If he's got that fire in his soul We'll see Justice Sarah And plenty of men who will stand up And give us our due Oh, Sarah, it's more than promises Sarah, it must be true A country that lets a man like me Own a car, raise a child Build a life with you With you I'd like to point out that uh, this isn't 
an event that costs an arm and leg like many one-night-only charity performances? How much are the tickets? It's true. Um, the tickets are 35 50 and 100 for VIP special uh, Make-A-Wish tickets. Um, 100% of all proceeds is going directly to the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Metro New York. And uh, you can get tickets on uh, TicketCentral.com. And we have a lot of listeners that aren't in New York and who might not be able to make it to this event, but I definitely want to encourage them to, they can still donate to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Absolutely. There's a website. Um, it's metronewyork.wish.org. And there's a place where they can go right on there and donate any amount of money to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And it does go directly to the wishes of these children. And you can even read a little bit more about the organization and see what they really do from the beginning of a wish all the way through fulfilling it. And I would like to really encourage our listeners to do that. The program's free. The performers donated their time for this great performance. Flaherty and Aaron's okay that these songs be performed on here. So, you know, please take a moment and, and give if you can't get to the performance. And thank you so much again. The dates are? It is Monday, April 30th, 2007 at 8 p.m. And it's at the Lucille Lortel Theater downtown. All right. Thanks so much for joining us and for the great performances. Thanks for Thanks. having us. Top of the Trades. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com, your number one source for theater news and chat. First off, the Dramatist Guild Fund and Dramatist Guild of America will present their annual gala dinner and guild awards ceremony to benefit the fund on Monday, April 23rd, 2007. John Guire is the master of ceremonies and Michael Grief is the director of the program, which will include performances from the Apple Tree Company, Curtains, Grey Gardens, Spring Awakening, and Title of Show. Taking part in the event will be Tony Award winner Kristen Chenoweth, Raul Esparza, Deborah Monk, Aaron Davey, Matt Cavanaugh, John Gallagher Jr., Lauren Pritchard, and the cast of Title of Show. Wow, quite a few of those names have actually been on our show. This year's Guild Award winners include Scott Frankel, recipient of the Frederick Lowe Award for Dramatic Composition, presented for his score of Grey Gardens, Ed Bullins, recipient of the Flora Roberts Award, and Horton Foote, recipient of the Dramatist Guild Award for Lifetime Achievement. Classic Stage Company, the off-Broadway troupe committed to exploring classics and reimagining the definition of what a classic is, will welcome actors Diane Wiest and Michael Kumpsey, playwright David Ives, and director Walter Bobby into its 2007-2008 season. Under the leadership of artistic director Brian Kulik and executive director Jessica R. Jenin, the CSC will open its season in October with Kumpsey as Shakespeare's Richard III to be followed by the world premiere of Ives' new 17th century play, New Jerusalem, and then Wiest starring as selfish actress Arkadina in Chekhov's The Seagull. And yes, it is the news that is the earthquake upon Broadway. American Idol winner Fantasia Barano made her Broadway debut in the starring role of Seeley in The Color Purple on Tuesday, April 10th. Since Barano's May 2004 victory in American Idol's third season, she has released two successful albums, Free Yourself and Fantasia, and has been nominated for awards as diverse as Grammy Awards, American Music Awards, Vibe Awards, BET Awards, the NAACP Image Awards, and many more, including perhaps a Nobel Peace Prize. She also authored the New York Times best-selling autobiography, Life is Not a Fairy Tale, and starred in the Fantasia Burana story, Life is Not a Fairy Tale, a Lifetime original movie adaptation of her memoir in August 2006. So acting isn't completely foreign to her. <laughs> I'm being hard on her. I'm sure she's fantastic in this. Um... <laughs> <laughs> the biopic became Lifetime's second most-watched movie, garnering 2007 NAACP Image Award nominations for Outstanding Television Movie, Miniseries, or Dramatic Special, and Outstanding Actress in a Television Movie, Miniseries, or Dramatic Special. 
Last night, Burano became the first ever American Idol winner to star in a Broadway show. For more information on any of these news stories, just go to broadwaybullet.com, click on the Volume 110 podcast, and you'll find links to everything we talk about in this program. We'll be back next week with more of the top theater news in Top of the Trades. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up Volume 110. A lot of great stuff. Remember, if you have any feedback, I love hearing from you. I doesn't matter what it is. Just email me at info at broadwaybullet.com. It really makes my day to hear what you guys think. You know, it's a lot of work and your feedback is greatly appreciated. Remember, we are looking for some summer interns. So if you're interested, please let me know. And also email me at info at broadwaybullet.com to come to my birthday party, the Broadway Bullet Bubble Birthday Blowout. I'm your host, Michael Gillow, and I'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for climbing on board the Broadway Bullet. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet! We starved, so should an audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So, Jake Kapowski says my name, and I'm in the can. Actually, the Barfay thing comes from my whole life. People just chilling, vulture, boggler. the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.